Welcome to Why Should I Care, where I, Shashir Pandey, look to help young people find and follow their dreams while reminding older people that they used to dream too. In this episode, I speak with Stephen Thompson, the principal of an elementary school that takes an unconventional approach to learning. My name is Stephen Thompson, and I'm an educator, and I'm really looking to bend the conversation in education. And really, I believe that you know, schools are made for students, and along the way, we somehow forgot about students and teachers. And there is a big way where there's a disconnect between the business of education and the purpose of education. And I really want to bend the culture back to looking at the purpose of education rather than the business of education. And I do it by incorporating all of my interests. So pop culture, music, movies, all of that is incorporated into my journey because I believe that the world is a textbook. You don't need to pick out, you don't need to check out a textbook to learn. You can walk down the street and when you look at the table in front of you, you've got math, you've got geometry. When you look at, you know, the pictures on the wall in your house, all of that is math. It was put together and constructed in a certain way. So curriculum is all around us and we just need to remember how to access it. And it's really not, I don't, I need to go out and buy a textbook. And I think if you look back in history, you will go back and see that it started off with a teacher, you know, Aristotle, Socrates, and the profession was, you know, respected. There weren't any, there weren't administrators in ancient Greek, ancient Greece. You know, when we built the pyramids, they didn't have a principal. They had teachers who taught concepts and those concepts were able to educate and build the wonders of the world. So I'm almost, almost like a blockchain idea of education. I believe that education could run on a blockchain similar to like a Bitcoin. And I, I think I can be a disruptor of education and, and get back to benefiting teachers where they are at the top and it's, they're respected like they were in cultures in history where the teacher, you know, Confucius, Aristotle, Jesus, we looked at teachers first. And that's the, that's the data yes. that people don't look at. The data, when people say look at the research and look at the data, they go back to maybe the Industrial Revolution. But if you look at all the history and all the data, the people who built the pyramids, what were their test scores? You know, what was Albert Einstein's test scores? So we did it without test scores. We put a man on the moon without a test score. So what's the problem? So that's really what I look at. And there's a lot of research and data that explain this clearly from not from an emotional standpoint, but when we really look at the research and we really look at the data, that's what I ask people to do. I don't I, I can make an emotional appeal, but I really want to I really want to look at the data and the research. So yeah, so that's pretty much the pitch. I believe that, you know, in there has been a weaponization of data. And I think if you saw the Facebook recent testimony, when they asked, a congressman yes. asked who wrote the algorithms? Was there a directive given to insert a bias into an algorithm? And in education, there was a bias inserted into the algorithm. And that's really what it comes down to. So that's what I believe in a nutshell. So a lot of great information in that bio of yours. Um, I was really intrigued, especially right when you said the combination of remote schooling and also incorporating blockchain is something that's really interesting to me. I know that the whole idea of blockchain is decentralized, so you don't have these big organizations like banks in the middle holding your cash and providing trust. There's a numerical algorithm that is encrypted in such a way that other um, that it feels safe to both parties without a middleman. Correct. How does that apply to education? So basically for public education right now, the centralized authority is the government. So basically the funding formula for a school is that each student is worth a certain amount of money. So in the state of California, every student is worth a monetary figure. So and high school students are worth more than 
than elementary school students and poor students, socially economically disadvantaged students are their formulas are calculated at a higher rate than students who are non-economically disadvantaged. So that's where, so basically you only need the central authority in education to move the money around. You don't need them to move. You don't need them to teach a child now along with, and this is no problem or anything, but along, but if you take money, there are, compliance issues and regulations that come with taking public money. So it's nothing sinister, but it's just like there are a lot of. So when you take money from the government in order for the government to show accountability that you are spending the money correctly, there are a lot of compliance issues. Now, the problem is innocent people can get hurt by the compliance issues. It's almost like the terms and the conditions are the teachers don't understand the terms and conditions. So let's just take, for instance, an example would be, so you could, kids who are, have disabilities are protected by a federal law. So in order to make sure you federal law, you have to send paperwork in a certain amount of time. You've got five days. Now, this is nothing sinister, but there's one person usually doing that job. And that one person misses that 10 days and you've got a very wealthy person now, you've broken the federal law and the school will not, will not take liability for you. So now you, a, a poor attendance clerk who's overwhelmed making $11 an hour, now has federal charges against you. And also now you can end up going to jail. Now I've seen this because I was a part of an organization that the federal government raided the organization and the Owners ended up going to jail, not nothing sinister, because they set up the organization based upon how a private organization would set it up. So basically what it came down to was private versus federal. And you can't if you take money from the government, you have to follow the government's rules. And there's a lot mm -hmm. of rules and all those rules are hard to yes. understand. But if you on a blockchain, you just take the government out of it, you can just go directly to the student. And that's why my I am more tending to, you know, going towards more of a private based system, because then everybody will self-regulate. So you won't have the reasons why you have cultural problems or administrators and teachers are at odds is because of how the money is moved around. That's why when you hear somebody say at a school, we need to have high attendance. It means attendance equals money. So if kids don't come to school in the state of California, every every school is funded differently. So in the state of California, it's not funded based upon property taxes, like in some states, because the state of California wanted it to be equal. So a kid in Beverly Hills yeah. and a kid in Compton, they're both funded the same. But uh, so yeah. that, that's really what it is. So a lot of people don't understand that it's money. It's money. And the, and the only reason in public education, the money is there. And then what happens that's, that's some people think is good, some people think is unfortunate, is that now we have to hire out a lot of private consultants to do the business of education. And in the past, like, for instance, when I was growing up, I had driver's ed at school and we had cars and my school bought cars and we had fully funded sports programs. But we cut all those programs and now the private sector is doing driver's ed. So all of these cuts in education allowed private benefits, private companies, private textbook companies mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. When the real experts, we don't need those. We don't need curriculum companies because a teacher, by going through simply the process of becoming an educator, you have all of that skill and knowledge. We don't need a textbook company and the textbook and the curriculum providers charge a whole lot of money for what you can already naturally do as a teacher. So I put together programs where their teacher created curriculum. And I save, I, I can educate 200 children for $2,000 where there are programs out there that will give you $3,800 to educate one child. So I can educate 200 children for the same price that a company or a school district will educate one child for. So that's why we don't. And the reason is simply just like the blockchain concept. If the teacher works with the student directly, then you don't need a centralized authority. The centralized authority only exists to move the money around. And that's it when you look at it. Because if you take 
the centralized authority away, the kid will still learn. If you take a teacher away, the kid won't learn. And we see that because it's about learning. Like you see a baby, a baby doesn't have, learns how to walk on their own. And there's, there's research out. There's a guy named Sugatra Mitra who did a Ted talk on this called school in a cloud Mm -hmm. where he went to India and they stuck a computer in a wall and they found the kids learned on their own. The only thing that they needed was somebody to give them encouragement. So they call that grandmother. Hmm. So the research exists. So the research exists that will, that there's no research out there that shows that having a central authority increases learning. So mm-hmm. that's what it is. And then the thing where it came out of, there was a study done and it's called the nation at risk. And in the study, they found what was called the Simpsons paradox. I know, think about Lisa and Bart Simpson, but the Simpsons paradox is like this, is that in a mathematical formula, you take the three averages, and they did this with baseball players. They took David Justice and they took uh, Derek Jeter, and they put their three years across from each other, their batting average. Now, Derek Jeter had three individual years where he had a higher batting average than David Justice, all three years. But David Justice came out with the higher batting average so that's the paradox why does that happen so when they looked at sat data in the night in 1979 what they found were that african-american students and people of color their sat scores were going up while the test scores of students who were non-african-american were going down but those scores were already high but then they used that study to say that the schools were failing but they did not look at the improvement that was happening from that study a nation at risk that birthed all the standardized testing some sources that say that they knew that and some there are certain educational leaders that have said that somebody said you need to bury this data don't say that and that's what that's a dispute that goes on but that's in that's when people have weaponized data there was a clear bias so that's it in a nutshell a big nutshell what i why i think a centralized authority or an education on blockchain would work but i don't think it will work on a governmental level because you don't want to fight the government that's what i've learned you do not want to fight the federal government unless you find a way yeah so i'm I'm not going to fight that battle there are people who want to fight that battle but i think if you want to make a difference you just start your own thing. <laughs> so that's the way I look at it, ultimately. Yeah. The question comes in is, in order to qualify for a education in general, as an education in general, there are certain curriculum requirements. Do you still fit within those um, requirements? So basically, we have what's called standards. So right now, it's the Common Core standards. Mm-hmm. So the, and, and Common Core standards are very loose. So basically you can, there's a lot of, there's not a whole lot of accountability on your curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's more of like you pick the curriculum, you pick the standards, and then they don't, you don't, we don't really have the resources to hold everybody accountable Mm -hmm. for the curriculum. So basically you can just show that you have met the standards, then you're fine. Mm -hmm. But, But what you have to do is when you start to look a little bit deeper, you will see that there probably should be a little bit more accountability on the type of curriculum that people choose. Mm-hmm. But the, the, there's not a watchdog over it because I think at the end of the day, <coughs> nobody really wants to be held liable. So nobody will give you a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's one of the, the things too. And that's one of the unfortunate things. I think for me, I get a lot of letters and most of the letters are from attorneys and they're talking about how to remain compliant. But when I look at that, there's nothing really about teaching a child. And that's kind of the unfortunate mm-hmm. thing. And I think that's where we sort of miss. And I don't think, again, I don't think it's sinister. I just think that at some point, everybody is scrambling to take care of themselves individually because we, we mm-hmm. have a society that is very litigious, that likes to sue people. And it just takes one mm-hmm. or two lawsuits really to hurt an entire institution so everybody's yeah. i can't say you know i can't judge anybody for trying to protect their job and protect their family that's just what they have to do but i think in the big picture 
I think we get unintended consequences when we are focused on compliance only and compliance isn't tied to, per- to the purpose. And I mm-hmm. think compliance is tied to you remaining compliant. It's not tied to a child learning. And I think that's what we've got to get back to. And we've got to see. And, I, and it's hard for people to see that because I've been in meetings where people say we need to have attendance and without attendance, we don't have a school. And I'm just like, well, we don't have this school, but we don't have, but you still, those kids will need to learn. So, and I think that's what we need to get back to is really looking at, hey, let's help children learn. And then if I think if you're focusing on children learning and you're taking care of them and you're serving them, you won't have those problems. And I think, again, that brings us back to blockchain. It self-regulates. You won't have, you won't have special education discrimination if people do right. So the only reason that we have, you know, the Individual Disabilities Act is that people were treating special students with special needs poorly. And Mm -hmm. if we just treated them right the whole time, then we wouldn't have that. So in a blockchain environment, people will be like, this student has special needs. I'm just going to work with them directly. It won't be I need to go to I need to go get a doctor. I need to go get a diagnosis. I need to fill out the paperwork in order to be compliant federally. You just know what things to do with a student to help them work within the confines of their disabilities. And, and that's the way that's what's kind of unfortunate, because I've worked with I do one on one sessions with students who have dyslexic and student who's students who have Asperger's. And I, I know what to do with a student who has dyslexia and I know what to do with a student who has Asperger's. I don't need to fill out a bunch of paperwork and have a bunch of meetings to be federally compliant because I'm helping the child directly. And parents never get angry. The only time parents get angry is when they are ignored or they're pushed around or people emphasize the bureaucracy first. Then it creates a situation where the family is hurt. And that's one of those situations you have the unintended consequences of a bureaucracy that is intended to protect people and it ends up hurting people. The bureaucracy only protects people at the top. It doesn't protect the people who it's designed to protect. And that's because people who it's designed to protect don't have the resources to access the bureaucracy and make it work efficiently. So now you have schools who got to keep attorneys on retainer and all that money that you spend for to keep an attorney on retainer to interpret the federal laws is taken away from education. And then you've got, if you look at org charts or salary charts of schools, you will see administrators making a whole lot of money. And I don't really see what the, I can't connect that back to the benefit to a student. And that's really what, it's more of it's a benefit to the bureaucracy, but it doesn't, you can't make that connection. I haven't made that connection to how how it affects a student. So- that's really what it, that's really how I, I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you get here? So that's, that's like a curious question. And I, and I probably agree with you that there's far too much bureaucracy in not just education, but in the, pretty much anything these days. What did you go to school for yourself? What, what sort of shifted your mentality into this sort of thinking? I've always had a problem with authority and bureaucracy. So I think that's been consistent. <laughs> I originally went to school to be a saxophone player and the same type of situation mm-hmm. happened. I, you know, I wanted to be a jazz musician and I got into my first, you know, I got, I wanted to be a jazz musician and I go to my audition and they, they put me in front of a piano and they played a note and they said, sing this note. And I'm like, I want to play jazz. And they're like, no, you've got to sing the note. So I failed. I failed the music audition. I didn't get into music school. Now here I am. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm Nash, I'm a you know state classically trained all state jazz band saxophone player who can't get into music school. Jean Mayer the marching man, all sorts of accolades. I can't get mm-hmm. into music school. So I talked my way in, and I went and auditioned, but I could not fulfill the requirements. I wanted to play the saxophone, but they had all these requirements that they laid out. And I ended up failing out of music school. And then I became an educator. I I got a history degree. And then I became a debater. And then I worked at McDonald's and became a manager. So it was all of these. I've always, there's always been a, I don't like authority and bureaucracy running through me. So that's always been consistent. 
And it's just manifest itself in every career move that I've made. You know, even when I joined a church, I was always against, you know, finding ways to disrupt dogma and going in opposite directions of what was actually advocated. So it, it makes for a marginalized life at times, but I just think I'm true to myself. And I think I just, you go to a point where you're like, yeah, I don't care what people think. And, uh, but I it was not easy. You know, you get marginalized for your viewpoint. So nobody liked cheering me on saying, gosh, we love that point of view, Stephen. But, you know, I, <laughs> I think people, people do appreciate me. And, but I think, I don't, I think the people who appreciate you are the people you're working with directly. I think the people above you from time to time, it's gone from outright opposing me to we're just going to be quiet. Because I'll fight. I fight back. I'm, I, I'm not going to be. I'm, I won't be bullied. And I think that's why the marginalization, when I see it coming, it's just for me to decide how do I want to engage it and if it's worth it or not. And I think now in my career, I'm going, you know what, I want to work with people who I like to work with and who like to work with me. And I don't want to fight all the time. And yeah. I, I don't think that that's anything wrong with that. Let you go your way. I'll go mine. And I can still make a difference. Mm -hmm. So do you do you teach like kindergarten through grade eight or, or grade six or. So I oversee our kindergarten through fifth grade program. And mm -hmm. uh, we have two programs within that program. So, <laughs> excuse me, I created our own program called lanes, which is a teacher created program. So because it was the first year I told my teachers, I said, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. So I'm going to teach as well. And I think that's part of my philosophy is that I, I'm not going to ask people mm -hmm. to do what I can't do. And I think that's one of the disconnects is that, you know, you have this. And I think this is across all industries where you have a leader who comes in and who's never worked a job and now they're leading. And what have you mm -hmm. done? So for me, I've had this just philosophy. I'm not going to ask people to do what I can't do. So I teach along with my students and I'm focusing on writing. Uh, I've written a California history class and I've written a United States history class and I teach it to fifth graders and fourth graders and it's virtually, and I'm teaching it a little bit differently than they get taught in a, a school. So my focus is to teach history, not in a chronological order where we start at, you know, the beginning of time and then we end we don't even get through all of the material in the year. So I teach history through mm -hmm. current events because I've always seen a disconnect where, you know, you're in school and the world is talking about the president, but you're talking about, you know, what happened in 1760. And then you never talk about the current events. So I make connections, mm -hmm. and I think that's what's really good. Yeah. So by making connections, I can talk about, which make it, it's been very hard this cycle to, talk about because fourth and fifth grade history are all about you know learning your state history and then fifth grade history is about u.s history and i've always taught the elections so for me i get i, I was going back and forth i'm gonna like i'm gonna teach the i'm just gonna teach the elections and i made this video about you know teaching the parents how to watch the trump hillary debate and then it's he brings bill clinton's accusers so now i'm like great what are the parents going to think? Or now it's like, I want to talk about the president, the presidency. I don't want to endorse a particular candidate, but okay, porn star. I'm like, you're making it hard for me. I want to teach about the systems of government, but I got the president up there saying, you know, porn star. And what's hard is because, you know, used to as an educator, you sit in the classroom and you would say you would tell children, OK, if you respect your if you respect people, if you don't make fun of people. If you don't bully people, everything will turn out okay. But now I'm like, hey, if you're a screw up, if you're a bully, if you treat people mean, there's a lane for you, a career lane, and you could be president by treating people horribly. And that is makes me really uncomfortable as an educator because I know that I can't. The minute you take a side, I you 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 will alienate the people you want to serve. So I have to remain politically neutral. And I believe that's what we should do anyway. I mean, what goes on in the voting booth is like what goes on in your bedroom. Look, I don't I'm not telling people who I vote for because I think that's private and there's nobody, it's nobody's mm -hmm. business. And I think 
all of us would do a lot better in life if we sort of heeded that advice. But I have to try, I have to serve everybody. So I, I can't, I can't, it's, it's a difficult posture to, to, to wrestle into in our current political environment. I do believe that we can talk about these things civilly, but I just am upset at the grownups who are modeling to our children things that I would never teach our children to do. And then when you see things like, you know, these adults yelling at these children, you know, at Parkland, it's sort of like you should be I I as a teacher was so proud because that's what I teach children to be self-advocates. But for somebody to say that, oh, they're just liberal shills and, and to name call, I'm just like, what is that? I mean, we can have we don't need to call somebody. Can we have a discussion about gun control without calling somebody a liberal tool or somebody's going to take ban the take all of our guns? That's not even that that just shows <laughs> to me that you really don't understand. You should have been in a fifth grade history class because you would know in a fifth grade history class that the only way you can ban guns is by having two thirds of the House and the Senate vote on it and having state constitutions. So we're never going to get to that point where there's an amendment on the table. So you people who are yelling yep. guns, you don't know history. So it's not about, mm -hmm. it's how, so that's the frustrating thing. And to see adults modeling poor behavior and then saying, you know, we've lost family values and we've lost a work ethic and people are lazy. I'm like, you know what, you're hurting people. And why don't you stop for a minute and realize that you are hurting people? and apologize for hurting people. And that's what bothers me about the current political environment. And, you know, just sort mm -hmm. of shaming, you know, even with, you know, talking about snowflake cultures and, you know, those sorts of things, it's sort of like, who's the snowflake? You know, it's, <laughs> who's the real snowflake? So, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, no, I didn't get it affected. <laughs> Colin Kaepernick kneels and white people, ah, you know, like, yeah. That's, so that sort of stuff is, to me, discouraging as an educator to see the people who could make – young people need mentors. And for mm -hmm. people like that who could be in a position to mentor someone, choose to marginalize and make fun of them. And I was in a, at an event the other night, and the speaker was taught, said – he said, this generation can either make the greatest amount of impact in civilized history – or they can be the most barbaric. The, deci the, the deciding factor will be how they process their pain. And to see mm -hmm. what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen. Will these people who, these kids who are being marginalized and hurt all the time, will they be barbaric because of that? Or will they be a, transfer, a transformative light? And I think that, you know, adults really need to realize that. And I think children will be okay. And that's part of developmentally appropriate things. If we children only need structure, children need security and they'll be fine. When you think back to your own schooling, you don't remember the math test you took at four and fifth period, you know, in seventh grade. And I did this <laughs> survey with my teachers no. and I said, tell me about what do you remember about school? And every teacher to a T talked about the person who cared for them, who was there for them. They didn't talk about, they didn't remember the individual lessons. They remember the people who cared. And I think that's really what we've got to remember. You know, if I know phonics, if I know the long E sound in third grade at 10 o'clock in the afternoon, if I don't know it, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be, you know, a drunk at, you know, 50. But if you don't yeah. have, but if you, if, but if you have somebody who's constantly criticizing you, and constantly marginalizing you and not believing in your dreams, then you will end up a drunk at 50. We need to consider when we look at this generation and young and look at kids, it's more, a lot of the problems are problems with adults. And I see that. And uh, when I, every, every problem that I see with a child, it's, you can trace it back to an adult that is screwing up in their lives. And I think that's where adults, we need to be doing the reflecting and, take it seriously we can't call kids to be respectful when we're not respectful it's really just being helpful. Yeah. you know it's, it's it's actually quite funny uh you're mentioning all this literally just before i got on to record this with you i finished editing a video i'm going to post after this uh for my instagram page 
where I talked about um, the dismissal of dreams of younger children. So essentially, I talked about how, for example, your your child comes to you and you ask them, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the child says, oh, I want to be a dinosaur. And And that's like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then the adult tendency is to go, okay, well, that's just like kids speak. That's that's dumb. It doesn't make any sense, right? But if you dig a little deeper, maybe you find out that the kid actually really enjoys pretending to be a dinosaur, so they should go into acting classes. Uh, or maybe they really enjoy the archaeology aspect of thinking about dinosaurs. And there's there's a lot of p- practical applications behind those dreams that they just don't know how to express yet. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I'm glad you brought up the the dinosaurs. I, when I was in my teaching tra- my teacher training program, somebody got up and they said, don't teach the dinosaurs because it has no educational value. And I sat there and I said, would you tell that to an archaeologist that, that, that what they do has no educational value? So that that is true. And it's like what you said, what you explained right there was design thinking. And I think education needs to embrace design thinking where you pull a child forward. You articulated it better than people with PhDs writing curriculum. Well, yeah. thank you. <laughs> but that's really what it is. It's, we need to embrace design thinking. What you just said is pulling the idea forward. What happens when you tell a child, you know, they can't do this. The child doesn't have, you know, they don't have the developmental skills that we have. So the child thinks I'm stupid when, when they hear that. They don't think... Mm-hmm. You know, well, I need to go on a different career path and all those other sorts of things. But it hits the child's identity and then they never pursue their dreams. And that's what we don't realize. We don't realize that simply as an adult, you know, somebody said if somebody says to me, Stephen, your idea is stupid. I can just say thank you for the feedback and move on because I'm developed enough to know it's not that I'm smart enough. It's just that I have higher thinking levels that came because I hit the age 21. Neuroscience says that. But a child doesn't have that kind of thinking ability. That's why you always see child geniuses. They're always geniuses in math. You never see a five-year-old who writes an Oscar-winning screenplay. It's because they don't have critical thinking skills developed enough to do character nuances and those sorts of things. But that's just child development. Mm-hmm. So that's why you always see geniuses in math. But you can't, they can't critically think. So, and it's not that the child can't, doesn't have the ability it's just neuroscience says that you won't develop enough to think that way. So when we marginalize a child's dreams, it hits their identity and they think something is wrong with them. And that's when we wound them, you know, and that's where the wound comes. And yeah. when they talk about everybody has a father wound or, you know, when you go to therapy and they bring you back to your childhood and your wound. And that's what we do. We could not wound people and we would make it, you know, somebody's going to get wounded as a child. The world isn't perfect, but we don't have to wound children. You know, we mm-hmm. can make that decision in the moment to stop for a second and consider what will my comments, what effect are my comments going to have on a child? And a child will self-regulate. I mean, we all go through, mm-hmm. you know, if you just simply say, well, great, go get a book. Let's get a book on dinosaurs and read it to them. And then maybe they're going to then mm-hmm. five minutes later, they're going to want to be a cop. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that way. Right. Um, kids will go through those sort of progressions so quickly. And yet as adults, we we have that we, we struggle to like let go of a singular thought. Right. It's like, oh, I'm going to be an engineer and you're you're stuck to that for four or five years and you're not. If you catch yourself thinking off course, then you sort of self-correct. But I think that if, as a child, if you have a singular, consistent mentor that's empathetic and and uh, encourages your dreams, I think that mentality would be reduced. Yes, you are absolutely correct. You nailed it. You know, I was at... I went to an event last I, I was at an event in, in Orange County. Now, Orange County is a very wealthy area. And there was a therapist. And he was talking mm-hmm. about the high suicide rate in Orange County. 
Now I know why there's a high mm-hmm. suicide rate or there's, you know, pain in a, in a economically disadvantaged area, because, you know, when you see somebody get shot, that's trauma. But I'm like, why are people mm-hmm. who are wealthy, who have everything killing themselves? Why would a kid who's got a Porsche, who's got their own summer home, parents are wealthy. Why are they killing themselves? And what the therapist was talking about, it comes down to time. Like parent kids need connection. So when the parent, you know, is working 50 hours doing, you know, what they do, and then they give their child a Porsche, the child needs the parent. So they need the parent there to talk with them, to be with them, to show interest. And then that child feels loved and the child is not scrambling the child. So that's, it comes down to time. That's what one of the therapists told me. It comes down to time. And that's also kind of eye opening because Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there thinking that, you know, these people got it all. They're wealthy. They're making a lot of money. Why are they unhappy? And that's eye opening mm-hmm. on both sides. So it's not an yeah. issue of somebody's, you know, the rich are bad and the poor are bad or anybody's bad. It's just that we've got to get back to our shared humanity and our shared humanity values the connections we make with each other. And if we do that, then I think we will go a long way of helping each other. By just looking at our shared humanity again through those eyes, like you just yeah. mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my experience, Porsches do not provide very good emotional support. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Stephen Thompson, at let's say 10 years old, if someone asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would he say? I wanted to be. I wanted to play basketball professionally. I wanted to, I wanted to play all the major f- sports professionally and I wanted to be a superhero mm-hmm. and I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be those things. And I used to like I used to make up my own superhero and run around. Then I would sit there and dream about, you know, playing for the Chicago Cubs or playing for I grew up in Chicago. So I wanted to play for the Cubs, the Bears and the Bulls all at the same time. You know, those are the things I do. <laughs> I wanted to. That, that wow. those were like my my dreams. You know. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so you strike me as someone who did receive um, the emotional support as a child. So who was that for you? Well, it was difficult. It was my older brothers because I came along and I I came along when you know they were sixteen and seventeen, and I think though. <laughs> I had the emotional support. <laughs> then my father got very ill when I was uh, mm-hmm. when I was in seventh grade, and then he passed away when I was eighteen. So or, it it was a difficult journey. I think the support came from my probably from my friends. You know, I, I think when I look back on it, there's a lot of bad things that we did, but I also think there was a lot of good just by having people around you. And, and just that that's kind of the emotional support you know my older brothers everybody played a role you know in my life uh, you know from my mother and then i think that's what changed everything my mother and my father gave me a lot of support my father got ill it was just difficult for that level of support to remain and uh mm-hmm. it was that was difficult and challenging but really my brother's and uh, that was a great benefit to have two brothers who were 16 and 17 years older than you. You know, I got the best stuff for Christmas. You know, like my brothers had jobs, <laughs> right? My other friends, brothers, were yeah. like sisters were in school with them. So it was cool. At Christmas time, I got the best toys from both brothers, you know. So that was that was really cool <laughs> as a kid to be able to, you yeah. know, get better stuff. And uh, oh, they would always take me to the movies. So my brothers kind of filled that dad role for me and uh that really helped out a lot yeah that's i I mean in a strange sort of way almost lucky um i've I've only met one person with uh that huge of a gap between um their siblings but uh yeah that person also um mirrors your sentiments of having their eldest their elder siblings have more of a parental figure role as opposed to a sibling role. Yes. Yes, definitely. That definitely had that. And that was, uh, it was cool. It was one 
thing is that like my my best friend from high school, his mother went to school with my brother. And then we found that out later on. And that was sort of like weird where, you know, like some here's somebody's mom. They're the same age as your brother. So that was always the weird dynamic. <laughs> you know, I think, <clears throat> you know, it was always a weird dynamic. You know, you had the oldest parents in uh, school. Now it's more common. Like out here in California, people wait till they're in their 40s and they have kids all the time. So I was kind mm-hmm. of the, I was really the odd kid out, you know, years ago. But now it's kind of yeah. like it happens, you know, some dudes run their second and third family and, you know, <laughs> they've got, you know, a 20 year old son <laughs> and then they've got a two year old or they got grandkids and then they've got two year old. So it's a different day and age. So <laughs> that's it. And that's another thing. Yeah, uh, I'm in Canada, so it's a bit of a different feel. You were talking about the curriculum earlier of school where um, you learn state history and then I guess it was presidential history yes. you were uh-huh. saying um so yeah we don't really have that we we mostly learn about the british settlement and then um pioneers <laughs> and aboriginal um culture and yeah same sort of disconnect there where a lot of a lot of stuff was taught but there was no seeming connection to the present day so it all just seemed sort of unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that history can be taught in a way that, because really you you get the most benefit from s- certain stories when you're in an environment where those stories apply. Right. And I feel the typical curriculum-based education doesn't do a good job of creating interest. Yes, you're correct. And really, it's sort of, yeah, you're, you're correct. And I think it's it's part of like, you know, the one, first, being in Canada, some of the best research actually for education is coming out of Canada. You know, you, I mean, you've got, first, you got like Malcolm Gladwell, who's Canadian. But then there's some educators. A lot of books that I've read that they're starting to now teach in programs have been research that comes out of Canada. So somebody's doing something right. As far as talking about accountability and how we should uh, – how we should approach the profession more from a coaching perspective. And I think once you really got a, people became, it's sort of like this curriculum is supposed to be, is a good servant, but a horrible master. And sometimes people want the curriculum to be the master. So if you drop the curriculum down, uh, if you drop the curriculum down, then the magic will happen. The magic happens with a teacher using the curriculum perfect you know and, mm-hmm. and, and allowing the teacher the freedom to the curriculum is like an instrument and if you let the teacher be mm-hmm. the director and sometimes the teacher is also the musician the curriculum can be magical but if you but a lot of times people come in and the curriculum is a system mm-hmm. and they want you to follow the system and then that sort of quenches the teacher so the teacher like a teacher like me if you have to tell me to follow a script mm-hmm. i'm gonna not do the curriculum the way you want me to. But if you allow me to use the curriculum, you know, more like a chef will use ingredients, then, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of success. So that's why I've I've always used curriculum and how I look at it is like, I'm a, I look at myself as I'm a chef and then there's McDonald's. So curriculum is like McDonald's. You want to go in fast food. I'm going to be use curriculum curriculum. I'm a Michelin chef. So I look at curriculum mm-hmm. as this is an ingredient. And then I also think about where I'm sourcing my ingredients from. So I want sustainable curriculum. And I think a lot of that can be found in primary sources. A lot of curriculum mm-hmm. is not written from primary sources. I mean, I had a parent call me last year and complained. And she said that is a good business. And I, I, I had to stop for a second. And when I read it, it said that, you know, plantations were well run and they were a good business for the owner. And I wrote a very sh- strong, forceful email to the curriculum company. And I said that this is absolutely unacceptable. A plantation was, you know, that's war crimes being committed. But to call it a sustainable business is atrocious. And, uh, and mm-hmm. but to see that that happened, like, there are people who are supposed to be checking for things like that, you know, and we can't 
if we're going to tell the if we're going to talk about history, we need to tell the truth. And, you know, the truth mm-hmm. is our armor. Like I'm a scandal fan. And I was like, scandal is almost over with. So my wife and I love scandal. And that was like the episode last night where they outed themselves. You know, B-16 was outed. I don't know if you watch scandal. I'm just going off on it. I don't, I don't but anyway, <laughs> that's sort of what I, yeah. I, I think about, of, you know, that, the way you use curriculum. So, yeah. And I, I actually remember now that um, now with the Internet and with people just generally being more socially aware of things, I, I learned a lot more about um, the natives here in Canada prior to the settlement of uh uh, by the British and um, yeah, I remember the um, <coughs> the textbooks kind of glitch parts where they weren't um, where the British weren't so nice to people. Yeah, it's a challenge because in California we teach the California missions, and the missions were basically become a Christian or we burn you at the stake. And it's hard to teach that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I obviously I, I I but I try to talk about it's very difficult. Because it's also a, a, you also think about what am I exposing a child to? But I try to expose them to the truth, and then but like uh, instead of going rated R, I try to go rated G. I can tell the truth rated G. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm gonna say you know that they that they killed the Native Americans while they were trying to convert them yeah. and let it sit there. So I think people get in tr- you can tell the truth, but if you start going, you know what, then this is why we need to take down the system. That's when people get mad. If you just kind of explain it, yeah. then it just sits there and it's cool and nobody will bother you. If you try to be evangelistic and, you know, turn into that, the Messiah or something, you're going to get, that's when people come <laughs> after you. But if yeah. you just kind of put the truth out there, nobody's really paying attention and say, hey, look, I taught the standards. I taught about Native Americans and I taught about the Canadian settlers and everybody gives you a thumbs up. And that's pretty much it. Then you're good. Mm-hmm. So it's really a lot of times is the vocabulary you use and how to message yourself. It's sort of like the step <clears throat> you've got to work. If you want to change the status quo, you've got to work within the status quo and you can get the change that you want inside the status quo. You just got to play the status quo's rules. It doesn't mean you're a sellout. It just means that you can get change if you follow the rules and people don't think mm-hmm. so rule followers don't have the peripheral vision. So if you're just checking the boxes and filling out the paper, they're not thinking that, you know, this is going to lead to a revolution. Now you're in your mind are thinking, if I do this, I'm going to change and revolutionize the school or culture and bend it. Don't tell people that just think that to yourself, maybe pray about it or have a ritual and say that to yourself, keep that to yourself, and then follow the rules. And then when the change comes, then you can be like, hey, I made this change. Think about it. So it's mm-hmm. really, that's really the thing it is. It's always about approach and messaging and vocabulary and knowing when to, when to be in, when to, I saw, I read an article about, you know, uh, problems in companies. You either have a visionary and then you have exec- you know, somebody who executes things or you have skill and will or another types of things that either people have a lot of skill, but they have no will or they have a lot of will and they have no skill or they're all visionaries, but then they are lack execution. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the things I think about Elon Musk right now. Is he all visionary and he's starting to fall back a little bit on execution when you see that Tesla is can't meet their production goals. And then you see him setting these even crazier goals for himself. It's sort of like this sort of I, I think I can see that pattern of when a, a leader starts to take everything on himself, you're close to maybe not accomplishing your goals because you don't trust your team. So if you don't trust the team, you've got to come in as a superhero and save everything. And I think that's sort of the dynamic mm-hmm. I see right now with Elon Musk. I don't know if it's going to happen that way. We'll play it out. We'll see. But yeah. that's kind of the dynamics that I think I see that goes on, you know, and you can face. Yeah. So that's yeah. one of the things that, you know, I look at. I'm not sure how I got onto Elon Musk and Tesla off of your question, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't remember how that were happened yeah. either, but uh, I was enjoying yeah. the story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I think Elon Musk, like if he if he retired tomorrow, he would still be considered a great man. So it's. 
at this point, even if he doesn't do any amazing great things, yes. that's and fine. I think sometimes we 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 forget that. Like I think about like when Uber went down, people are like, "Oh, this guy's a bozo and a moron." No, this dude started an incredible company. I mean. He just failed at a great level. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he's a failure. I mean, where's your company at that you started from scratch and grew into a, you know, where's yours? You know, you sometimes when you see people criticizing people, you're like, well, what have you produced? There's only, I think there's only a few people in the world who could probably, you know, criticize, you know, Travis from Uber. I'm not condoning his personal behavior, but do you really want to call the guy a failure? <laughs> you know, where's your yeah. company? Yeah. <laughs> So, and that's what you see a lot too. You know, there's a lot of posers out there who just, you know, it's like get in the ring. There's a Theodore Roosevelt quote that talks about the critic. And whenever I, that's what gets me when I hear people criticizing education. I just want to say, look, come teach. If come teach, come do, I, I can go do your job. I'm pretty sure I could do your job. I could sit at the desk and run Excel spreadsheets and talk about ROI and CRM. <laughs> and then I, I think I can do that without pretty, you know, CRM is a glorified Excel spreadsheet in mine and ROI return on investment. We can toss all these acronyms around, but ROI is basically, do you have some people who are paying you for this service? If you don't have people paying you, then yes. what are you doing? You've got a lot of acronyms. Okay, cool. Are you doing the job? You know? So, but when people criticize education, I'm like, look, come get in the ring. Look, and in a business, you can hire people. And if the people disagree with you, you can fire them. You can have an interview and you mm-hmm. can go hire your employees. Pick the best ones from any, any place you want. I get 25 students. I don't get to pick them. And I don't get to get rid of them and I'm responsible to change them. So let me see a corporate CEO go get homeless people, put them into their job. They can't fire them. They have to change them. They have to make them great. Sale. Whatever industry they are, they have to make them great. Then come talk to me about how I run my school. When you've done that, you can come talk to me. But until you do that, work under the same conditions that I do, I wish I could pick my students. I can't do that. You know, if somebody at mm-hmm. somebody in a workplace, you know, is battling cancer, I'll go put them on leave and they'll be good. I can't do that. If a kid is, you know, I've had situations where, you know, a kid's mother is getting beaten by her husband and I have to write a paper. I have to write something to the court and this kid gets in a fight and I'm supposed to suspend him. And he stands there and he looks at me and he says, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for my dad to beat my mom. And then somebody's out there saying, well, he needs to do his homework. And I'm like, no, they can't do their homework when they're going under those conditions. And I think that's that's what I think Mm -hmm. is tragic. So when I hear people talk about, Mm -hmm. no, even with gun control, let's arm teachers. And I'm like, look, until you have had the responsibility of securing a school, and you know what goes into that, like I have, I, it's, it's, it's incredibly challenging to secure a school and to have on your back, on your mind, the weight of all of these families who entrust their most prized possession to you every single day. And simply to say, we should arm teachers and that'll solve the problem. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And can I go into your industry and do that? Can I go to the NRA and start issuing policy papers and telling you how to run your organization? So I think like Kendrick Lamar says, you know, sit down, be humble. You know, I just want to play that song. Whenever I hear somebody talk about gun control, I just want to hit play on Kendrick Lamar. Sit down, be humble. You know, (laughs) I love the reference. That song is perfect. (laughs) I just want to put that on if I had to own the rights to it. I just like sit down, be sit down, be humble. You know, get off my stage. I'm the Sandman. That's what I want to be. I want to be the Sandman sometimes, like Sandman sends at the Apollo. Get off my stage. And that's really what I think should happen. There's a lot of people who are getting paid a lot of money, but they just need to get off the stage. So, I mean, like, I wish I could, I wish I could fail at my job. I could be a corporate CEO. I could responsibly, I could irresponsibly lead an organization into failure and then get a buyout. How do I sign up to do that? Because I think I could successfully fail at leading a Fortune 500 company. 
I know a little bit about the stock market to look for the gross profit margin. And that's how I'm supposed to add value to a company. So if I do poorly, can I get a $400 million buyout and then go and be out the game, you know, because I could do that. Hmm. I have that skill set. I could fail. So that's why I don't understand. Why do we reward somebody who failed with a couple hundred million dollars for them to go away? If you're an educator, you go away. You don't get anything. You don't get a severance. You have nothing. Yep. You have your next paycheck. And I don't understand how, how, how is that system fair? And how, and, and, and how did you earn that? If you failed, how did you earn your money? So that's what gets me. You know, <laughs> how can you? I, I, I think that, um, I think that like typically a critic in your field is somebody who is insecure about their inability to do their job in a different yes. field. Yes. You're right. And that's where an educator like me gets a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> because I have, I have a tremendous chip on my shoulder. I went into like Alton MBA. I'm going to show all these people that educators have just as much skill and could do your job. I've got something to prove and I'm going to prove it. And I don't know, that's probably mm -hmm. not healthy, but that, I, I tell you, I, I got a chip on my shoulder. That's where it comes from. I, I sit there and think, look, I could go, I could, I could run your company today. I could solve all your problems. Probably not, but I, you know, I'm, that's just my type of person. I try to jump into stuff, but being a teacher allows me, I have this skill to learn and talk. It's like, I'm a sophist too. Am I a sophist or I'm actually a person? So you know what? That's what I, that's my own battle is, you know, working through that. You know, it's always finding like, where am I going to end up? You know, so I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, I'm just going to be me and the world can deal with it. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Well, I mean, you have a school of your own to show for it. So I, uh, I think that's a lot further than a lot of your critics have gotten. So that's, um, that's a positive, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. If all um, is at the end of the day, as long as I can serve children and serve families and serve, serve teachers, I know that that will turn out positive. And if I fight people, you know, you've got a limited day. So what can I do? Can I fight people in the system who I don't agree with and probably have a different philosophical view than me? Or can I serve children? And I at least have a clear, I have a clear picture that if I just simply show up every day, work with students, work with mm -hmm. families, then I'll make the change that I want to make. But if I fight people, mm -hmm. I'm not going to make the change I want to make. And that's the way I look at it. I'm going to put, where can I put good into the world? And wherever that leads me. Mm -hmm. And I've always been successful applying that strategy in my career. And, uh, you know, now I'm thinking about what's next. What can I, what am I called to do next? And uh, where should I go? So those are some of the big questions that I'm wrestling with, but you know, that's, uh, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I think, I hope <laughs> if I answered your question the right <laughs> way or from, yeah. You know. I mean, it's very important, right? Like having, uh, I also have somewhat of a chip on my shoulder and a same sort of story. Um, but yeah, I put out content every single day. I, I, do things that I believe will put good into the world every single day. And if I'm wrong, that's fine. Maybe, maybe my opinion was wrong, but at least I tried. There's not, I don't see anyone else putting out content every day, putting and, and doing important work every day. Yeah. And right? that's important. Cause I remember in the, in the Stephen Pressfield book, war of art, when he said, we have an obligation to our gifts but we don't have mm -hmm. an we don't have a guarantee of our results, and that's hard because I want results. Like I do my podcast, I want results. But you know what? And that's what yes. I sit there and think. I was like, you know, when I get to, and I heard a person say, "Attach." I heard Seth Godin say, "Attachment is the beginning of suffering." You know, the Buddha said that, and you are in love mm -hmm. with this idea. So when I do my podcast and we do our podcasts, the important thing is I get to do a podcast. And I own that podcast. Mm -hmm. So that's the most important thing. Now, my results, yeah, I want my podcast to be heard by all these people and I want to get, but that's a different story. Like Seth Godin said once, there's the, there's the podcast business and the famous business. Which one do you want to be in? Because they're distinct. So 
what do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Do I want to be a podcaster? Well, I'm being a podcaster. I got my microphone. I've got my content. I've got a group of people who I can work with. Then I should be happy because that's really what I want to be doing. But it's hard because there's that pull. There's that pull of wanting something more. But then I think about, I get back to, you know, well, then what do I really want? And I can't, there's nothing stopping me from doing what I love. And that's important. And when I see what, you know, so then I realize I can just go do it and be happy. And I can go play my saxophone and I can be happy and I can go teach and I can be happy. So it's sort of like this. And it's sort of weird because what's grown up is that I've had I had this sort of creativity that I really love that I'm trying to get back. But I also have education that has sort of paid the bills for all these years. So it's Mm -hmm. like I need to be grateful for education and not be upset because there was a period where I was just really upset about my career and then I'm not got the results that I've wanted and I'm not respected and I'm not making the money. And then I said, Steve, but look at be grateful for education. And I think what really rocked me, Malcolm Gladwell, revisionist history, he did a podcast and he talked about Brownsburg Board of Education. And he talked about all the African American teachers who lost their jobs as a result of when they integrated schools, white schools didn't want to hire black teachers. And it wasn't because of mm-hmm. the performance. So when they looked at the academic data and the performance of the black schools, <coughs> the teachers did well. They just had poor facilities. And I looked at that yeah. and I was like, I need to really be grateful for the profession I had because there were people who didn't have the opportunities that I had. They, they didn't have the opportunity to go to school. They didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And I took this lightly. Like, yeah, I got my degree. Yeah, I got my credentials. Yeah, whatever. I just did. But there were people mm-hmm. out there, you know, and teaching, there weren't many jobs available for African-Americans, not because of talent or ability, but the doors were closed. And I had to take it seriously mm-hmm. because those people who had those jobs went to college. And when they couldn't get a teaching job, the only thing left for them was, you know, some people had to go into, you know, cooking or restaurant industry or the servant industry or some turned to crime or some got even worse you know killing themselves or drugs and i have to remember them and i have a debt that i owe to them and moving forward i really i remember that and that rocked me and it really made me say i've got to take my profession seriously for because those people paid a price that i never had to pay so That's really what that that rocked me. And it really made me think that, you know, like my father didn't have the opportunities that I had. You know, he grew up in, you know, the Jim Crow South. He had an eighth grade education and he went to the military. He made it. He built a great life for our family. But there were doors that he couldn't get through to advance himself in his career. And it was just simply because somebody wouldn't open those doors. (laughs) Uh He could have done. He could have done. He tried to get a leadership job in the post office his whole career. And there were always barriers that prevented him from getting it. It was not that he couldn't do the job, but an eighth grade education prevented him from doing that. You know, so Uh there there are things I talk about on my podcast, how, you know, when the law school, the LSAT, the law school exam used to be all written and no multiple choice test. So somebody like Thurgood Marshall today might not pass the bar. But it put these sometimes requirements yeah. are put there to keep people out more than they are to let people in. And I think sometimes if somebody can do that, can they do the job or can they do your requirement? And I think you want people who can do the job. And that's kind of a, a battle. So that's kind of where I land on a lot of these things. Yeah, I think I think people overestimate their ability to measure other people's yes. abilities. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've been, yeah, it's been an interesting chat with you. Yeah, I, actually going back, I, I wanted to say you you mentioned you can be in the, in the podcasting business or being, or in the being famous business and you get to choose. And I think I've taken that a little bit further. Like I originally started thinking I was getting into the podcasting business and I wasn't. Turns out I was getting into using 
having a podcast as an excuse to talk to really exciting and fun people like yourself. Okay. I appreciate so. that. I'm <laughs> glad you consider me exciting and cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so with that, do you, is there anything like this would be the great opportunity of uh, plug period? You can give your uh, podcast a shout out, your school a shout out, everything in that uh, regard. Yes. I would love people to listen to the Stephen Thompson experience. That's all you have to type. There's no SEO, the Stephen Thompson experience. And what's good about it is that I use music to reveal hidden figures in history. So I use Earth, Wind and Fire, Aretha Franklin. I'm going to do a Bob Marley series over the summer. And I tie that to leadership and I tie it to history. So I use the music of Aretha Franklin to celebrate women's history. I talked about and I talk about people like Ann Lowe, who designed JFK's wife's wedding dress, but she died in squalor. And I use that to talk about the Me Too movement. So I do a lot of connections and it's really fun. I think it's a lot of people. It's a niche podcast. Uh, I think what for me is that I my podcast, I don't I do it a solo show. I don't interview people, but I think I'm the voice for the people who are dead. So like in the book, The Lorax, I speak for the trees and the Lorax spoke for the trees. I speak for those whose stories you've never heard. So there are, you know, there are mm. slaves who became Shakespearean actors. There are former slaves who became, you know, museum curated artists, but they never got the recognition while they were alive. And now they're getting the recognition. Mm -hmm. They're going to get the recognition from me. So I speak for them. And that's why I don't do interviews. Maybe one day I will. But I think right now I'm going to I'm going to be their voice. So like the Lorax spoke for the trees, I speak for these hidden figures. So the Stephen Thompson experience, it is on iTunes. It is on Spotify. It is on Stitcher. It is on Overcast. If you email me, I will write you back. And I think that's pretty much it for me. Okay. And uh, what's the best way to get a hold so of you? So you can email me at the Stephen Thompson experience at gmail.com perfect okay well it was a pleasure talking to you thank you for uh joining me on the podcast and uh yeah it's been it's been great awesome to talk to you. thank you take care thanks for listening to this week's episode of why should i care you can find us on instagram at building intrigue facebook facebook.com slash building intrigue or you can email me directly at shashir at buildingintrigue.com.